Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What is going on, everyone? This is Dr. Josh Funk, and you are listening to the Strength and Knowledge Podcast. Good morning. This is Dr. Zach Baker, and I have got with me Christian Huckfeld, our sports resident here at R2P, uh, who treats clinically out of our Frederick location. And today we're going to touch on the topic of upper extremity return to sport testing. And, and ultimately, what does a good battery of tests look like uh, so that when we're returning athletes to the field, regardless of the sport they're going back to, we feel confident that we've put them through enough variety of demands to get a very overarching movement profile of how this person looks, how this person feels, and making sure that they are both physically and mentally ready uh, to go back to the field of play in a competitive, productive, uh, but also safe manner. And I think as you go through return to sport testing, uh, there's a lot of different components to it in regards to different boxes that we need to check. We need to make sure that, one, we are actually checking boxes and not just going off of timelines, uh, but we're making sure that they're physically competent. Uh, making sure that within each box that we're checking, we have tests and we have procedures that we're going through that are repeatable, they're valid, uh, and they're logical to go through. Um, but I think that the other thing we're going to have to talk about a little bit today is like, what do we do if we don't have a uh, clinical environment that's conducive to some of these testing, what are ways that we can still look at those qualities of the athlete uh, and feel like we have challenged them enough uh, to make an educated and informed decision of we're getting them back to sport? And I think upper extremity can be challenging at times because there's a lot of literature out there for lower extremity um, and also just how the lower and upper extremity function with regards to Things that you're naturally doing with activities of daily living uh, versus what you're doing on a, uh, a field or a court and just how much overlap there is with that compared to maybe with the upper extremity. Some things that you're doing are just you very unique from a specificity standpoint to that sport. So hopefully by the end of this conversation, we can have a better idea of what do we need to look at uh, from return to sport testing is there a logical sequence or order of which we should be progressing through these? Um, and then with these tests, what's kind of like the gold standard or what's commonly accepted? And what are some other things that maybe there's not an abundance of literature out there or maybe the best way of doing something requires equipment or just resources that we don't have available to us? 
So what are just some easy things that we can do in the clinic uh, that we do at ours that we can anecdotally share with you? Uh, or if you're just thinking through this, you can figure out that, yes, that would be a logical and sound way to go about this. So um, Christian's a baseball guy. That's where his passion lies. So I know upper extremity is something that he takes a lot of pride in. Christian, with upper extremity return to sport, do you mind just kind of walking us through the process of, let's talk early phase or early parts of that process. What are just some, some basic fundamentals that we need to make sure we're hitting? Yeah, I think, I think you nailed it right there. I mean, I think in terms of this return to sport battery that you just kind of highlighted right there, for any athlete, we need to start general. We need to hit general milestones that any upper extremity athlete should be able to accomplish before we start talking about specific skills. So, I mean, I think it starts with like a clean clinical exam. So no effusion in the joint at all. Girth measurement should be the same bilaterally, bothly, both at the joint, so making sure there's no effusion at the joint, and also muscular girth measurement. So if we're talking about upper extremity, I'm looking probably like mid-bicep, mid-forearm, so on and so forth. And then last, they, they should have completely clean special tests. And I know the literature on special tests, there's been a lot of discussion about how relevant it is recently, but... I'll use it maybe a little bit for the diagnostic perspective, but also I think kind of on the return to sport, like if we're talking about a post-op, a Tommy John or a TJ guy, they shouldn't have any discomfort with the milking maneuver. They shouldn't have any discomfort with moving valgus stress tests. Like if if they do, then I'm, I'm probably backing up and taking a few steps back, but just making sure that they have like a clean, what I'll call like clinical exam. Kind of second building off of that is they need to have full range of motion um, in that joint that we're that we're discussing. Um, I think this is where we can standardize a little bit differently just based on what sport they're playing. So full range of motion is probably going to be a little bit different for a collegiate or professional pitcher who's had a lot of miles on the arms versus maybe a younger athlete with a, a traumatic shoulder dislocation versus somebody with like a uh, lateral epicondylitis who's going back to high-level tennis or something like that. So all of those range of motion measurements are going to be different, but I think it's important to understand the demands of that sport and then follow the range of motion demands specifically. So like if we're talking about the upper extremity for baseball, like they need to have full shoulder flexion, especially as they get up into the higher levels, the collegiate and pro levels. We know those guys get really tightened up in the lat area, so having – Full shoulder flexion is really important. Um, it's actually a, a predictor of elbow injury. You need to make sure they have a symmetrical total arc of motion within five degrees bilaterally. And when I mean total arc of motion, I mean external rotation plus internal rotation. If you take up that total arc, you should be able to compare it right side to left side and be within five degrees bilaterally. I know kind of a while ago there was a lot of talk about GERD for the throwers, so glenohumeral internal rotation deficit, and whether that's relevant or not. And the research is is a little bit mixed on that, and also external rotation deficit being important as well. But I t- tend to look at both ER and IR total range of motion, making sure that's within five degrees. Also, if they're a pitcher, they should have more external than their um, non-dominant shoulder. They should be able to lay back into in the farther amounts of external rotation. And just making sure also elbow flexion, extension, supination, pronation is all the same. 
And then before we kind of dive a little deeper into maybe more specific tests, I'll call this section maybe more of a subjective strength measurement. Like they should be able to have a five out of five manual muscle test in pretty much any position. And now that's not me saying that, oh, once they have a five out of five, they're clear to return to sport. I want to make that very clear. I just, I should be able to push on their arm in any which way I want to, any position, and they should be as strong, if not stronger than the other side. And I think the things that we need to keep in mind, the actual sport they're going back to, the injury that they're they're, uh, suffering from is going to dictate and guide a lot of where you focus, excuse me, and allocate efforts from a range of motion or a strength standpoint. But making sure early on, we know what we're dealing with diagnostically. So we know what commonly accepted medical timelines are for healing with whatever that structure is. um, And often what type of time loss we're going to be dealing with to go through the reconditioning process for this individual. And you had mentioned with that, that's going to you know talk about our girth measurements, monitoring effusing, monitoring pain levels, and just also general medical timelines. We talked about getting into range of motion. Uh, we just started to touch on getting into strength. And from a strength testing standpoint, we're going to talk about a lot of different activities that you can do for either more specific or higher level strength. Higher level meaning allowing for uh, higher degrees of force output just from a magnitude standpoint or focusing on maybe the direction uh, that we're applying this force or the rate of force production that we're doing or the level of specificity with regards to positioning to their sport. So when you talk about manual muscle testing, I think it's just a very, for me, it's kind of a very easy way to get permission to do higher level activities. Um, and it's another way just to kind of check off a lot of your PT school 101 uh, orthopedic textbook um, testing where you can say, all right, we've hit the basics. We know that we now have a, you know, quote unquote, relatively uh, functional shoulder. Now let's see, we've accomplished range of motion. We've accomplished this baseline strength. Let's actually see how much baseball specific range of motion do we have? How much gymnastic specific range of motion do we have? Do we have the ability to start testing strength in manners that are going to be asking a little bit more from the tissues uh, surrounding the structure and the structure itself. So um, when we get into more of like our objective strength testing, and with this really just being able to definitively define and apply criteria to it, can you walk us through some of the steps of what that looks like for the upper extremity? Yeah, definitely. So after they have that manual muscle test that I'll call quote-unquote normalized, we need to start monitoring objective strength or strength just with objective measures. And this is where pulling in either a handheld dynamometer, a dynamometer or like a Tindex, something that's like has a rigid setup is, I think it's so important because we're not going to be able to pick up those subtle differences in side-to-side levels of strength, especially if we're talking about higher level athletes. So this is where it depends, I think, a little bit on the sport that you're getting them back to um, and what specific demands they'll need. Frequently, I'll look at external rotation at the side and internal at the side, as well as ER and IR up into the 90-90 position, as well as usually one measure of like a flexion or scaption measurement there as well. Um, That, like I said, that kind of depends on the time I have, the athlete I have, what I kind of deem is important. But with those measurements, I think there are three major components that we need to hit. First is intra 
meaning within the person. So we need to look at their dominant side versus their non-dominant side. Some of the literature says they like the dominant external rotation to be somewhere like 95% or greater than the non-dominant. I tend to look for as close to 100% or ideally up above 100% as possible. So looking at dominant versus their non-dominant side for external and internal rotation. The second thing I'll look at is their external rotation to internal rotation strength ratio. So how, how much strong, what's the ratio of strength there? Um, a lot of the literature will say anything above like 0.72 or 72% ER to IR ratio is pretty good. And I agree. Those, I think that number is a pretty solid starting point. My goal as a rehab provider is to get that number as close to 1.0 as possible. Get that posterior shoulder as strong as possible. Because if we think of the, the anatomy back there, the external rotators of the shoulder are going to be supra to a certain extent, infraspinatus, and teres. And those three little small muscles are going to go up against subscat, lat, and, te- and um, subscat, lat, and pec major. So huge, big, and strong internal rotators. So it's, it's always understood that external rotation is going to be weaker than internal, but the stronger I get that posterior rotator cuff, the better the arm can decelerate after throwing. So whether that's baseball or softball, whether that's hitting a volleyball, whether that's like throwing a water, like a ball in water polo, something like that, even um, like overhand serving in tennis, the stronger I can get that posterior cuff, I think kind of the better. So I usually look for 0.72 or higher, ideally as close to 1.0 as I humanly can get. And then I think the last thing is then standardizing these strength metrics to body weight. So if I have an athlete that's five foot five, 150 pounds, versus an athlete that's six foot four, 250 pounds, they better be able to push different levels of strength. So in order to kind of standardize that to body weight, I'll took I'll take their strength metrics and then perform torque to body weight ratio. Ideally, looking for external rotation somewhere around 20% of their body weight, and internal rotation is about 30% of their body weight. Um, The ranges differ depending on the population you're talking about, depending on the age that you're talking about, but usually kind of as a rough and dirty way, I'll say 20% peak torque to body weight for external rotation and close to 30% for internal rotation. And this is, I think, a a good segue into saying um, Tindex are great and handheld dynamometers are great if you can have those. In a completely ideal situation, I would have an isokinetic device, um, but we, obviously we don't have one here at R2P, so um, we'll, we'll settle for the, um, for, the, for the Tindec. And then the last test that, that I would look at, and this is for certain populations, but especially for more of my contact populations or, or my rugby guys, um, I'll look at the ASH test or the modified ASH test with our force plates that we'll frequently use for the lower extremity. So if you're not familiar, the ASH test is, a think of a prone IT or Y position. You get on your stomach into the prone, either IT or Y, and then you press down into the force plate and create force, almost like you're doing an isometric. Um, and you would compare that side to side, ideally looking for something upwards of 95% or better. That's a very extensive battery of strength tests that you can do. Um, And in an ideal world, you're able to do all of them. Uh, In a realistic world, you may not have all of those options at your disposal, or you may be working with an individual where just 
that level of uh, complexity may not be warranted for whatever they're going back to doing. And that's the difference between appreciating, are we returning to just activities of daily living or are we returning to a higher level, higher impact sport? Um, Another topic or another uh, just point to make with posterior cuff is we often associate it a lot with our throwing or our hitting and our deceleration demands associated with both of those. You talked about swinging a tennis racket, serving a volleyball, throwing a baseball or a softball. Keep in mind, the rotator cuff is also going to function from a compression-based standpoint. So it's trying to uh, provide more compression within the joint to resist distraction that's happening. So this is where you think about the prevalence of combat sports that are starting to come up, or you think about um, really any sport. I think about you know, wrestling, mixed martial arts, even football, where you're going to engage with another person, and they may be pulling or redirecting you, and you're using your arms to resist that or to produce that motion as well. There's going to be a lot of long-axis distraction that takes place in some of those motions. Um, and that's just another way to reinforce that, yes, we need the rotator cuff to function very, very good with regards to IR and ER. We also need to be able to tolerate and provide uh, a level of resistance to meet those tractional and distraction-based demands that we may encounter with throwing a punch or um, serving a tennis uh, ball or throwing a baseball or having uh, engaged two offensive and defensive linemen are engaged uh, and you're fighting for position there. So just think about the variety that you encounter with the shoulder. Now, Christian, I want to talk a little bit more about um, some functional based tests and however we want to term this, um, whether it's functional or movement based, um, but talk about some different activities that we can do beyond Uh, just isometric, isokinetic, uh, and manual muscle testing. Yeah, I think this is where, up until this point, I think that's kind of maybe our our general, what our upper extremity athletes should be able to do um, from a symptom profile standpoint, from a range of motion standpoint, and from a strength standpoint. And now is, I think, when we start to get a little bit more specific into the specific demands of that sport. So does our athlete need to do a lot of upper extremity weight-bearing? Are they a wrestler or are they a grappler and they need to do a lot of weight and movements kind of on their hands? They need to be able to withstand a lot of traction forces. Do they need a lot of uh, shoulder endurance and, and, and stuff like that? And so I think this is where the return to sport test battery, per se, can really kind of differentiate based on the needs of the athlete. But the first big main bucket that I'll go into is upper extremity weight-bearing. I mean, before we're testing these things, like we're not testing these things day one before they've done any upper extremity weight bearing. So I just want everyone who's listening to be thinking clinically, like they would have already gone through an upper extremity weight bearing progression, starting with double arm, progressing to single arm, starting maybe higher surfaces, progressing more down to the turf, starting maybe sagittal plane, progressing to the frontal and transverse plane, starting um, anticipatory and kind of progressing to reactive. So all of those things have kind of already been done. Level of impact has also been increased before we're even kind of testing this. But one of the ones I do like a lot is the upper extremity closed kinetic chain stability test. So you put two pieces of tape uh, three feet apart, and you have one hand on each piece of tape, and you go over and 
tap one hand, then tap the other hand. So it's basically it's intermittent double arm stability with a single arm stability tapping. And what you do is you time it for 15 seconds total, and you count the total number of taps. Um, there's pretty good literature that, that has different uh, norms that are important for each age group, for each sport. Typically, I will look for anything greater than 23 to 25 taps is pretty good. I think some of the literature says up to 21 is pretty solid. I tend to shoot for maybe ideally a little bit higher, but that's a pretty good one that I like. Um, Another one that we hear a lot in the lower extremity literature is the lower extremity Y-balance test. So using that same kit that we have, I will put them on the upper extremity Y-balance and the three directions will be just a straight plane lateral and then kind of a posterior medial and posterior or anterior medial for the three directions there, looking to see is their dominant side or the injured side, I should say. How does that compare to the opposite side? There's other methods that you can do it where you can standardize it to limb length. Truthfully, I will pretty much just look at whether their injured side is equal to their un, uninjured side. Um, and, and if there's a discrepancy side to side, or if I see a discrepancy, like maybe they're super comfortable moving out laterally, but it's crossing midline in that end range posterior medial direction, which requires a lot of like closed chain internal rotation. If that's limited, that gives me at least a little bit of a clue in of kind of what we need to do. Um, and then the last kind of upper extremity weight bearing test that I'll look at is the one arm hop test. And Zach, I know you and I have had a lot of conversations about this test because if you're not familiar, I would look it up on YouTube and before you give it to a patient, I would perform it yourself. It is a test that doesn't look that challenging, but when you do it, you're like, holy cow, that is a tough test. So if you're not familiar, you get up into a high plank position with a four-inch block next to one of your arms. You pull one arm away, so you're in basically a three-point plank position. And with the arm that's stable, you hop on one hand up to the four-inch block and then down. And you do up and back five times total, and you calculate the time that it takes you to do it. This is a test I'll frequently start on somebody on their knees just to make sure they, they feel comfortable hopping up and down because the last thing we need is, is them missing the hop and then smushing their face on the ground. So that's a test that I'll frequently use. I think it's great for like upper extremity tolerance to impact, especially if we're talking about dislocations. Recently, I've had a few posterior shoulder dislocations who this was kind of really their, their end stage return to sport kind of test. But this is, that's another really good one that I like as well. Anything that I missed or anything that you like on the upper extremity weight-bearing tests? No, I think those are, are good entry points, and they're, they're good uh, progressions in regards to the order that you laid them out of the upper extremity closed kin- uh, kinetic chain stability test. Then you go to the Y-balance where you get a little bit more multiplanar demand, uh, and then that one-arm hop test is obviously the, the most physically challenging because of the degree of propulsion and absorption required with that. Um, and that also lends us to kind of this uh, topic of power within our functional tests. And I think this is one where a lot of times you'll see uh, different uh, shot put tests or med ball throws thrown into the mix. So you can do your seated uh, bilateral or single-arm shot put tests with this seated against the wall in a long sitting position, uh, doing basically like a chest pass for the two-handed version, uh, and then offsetting to each side where you can do a single arm, uh, more of like a shot put style throw. 
and you're measuring the distance that they're able to achieve with this. Uh, with this, you get a good glimpse of just how much power they can generate. Uh, the one thing you do need to keep in mind, though, is hand dominance uh, as, and just the skill involved with it is going to influence how well they can do this. So, you know, keep in mind if you have somebody who's right hand dominant and they have a uh, left arm injury and you're now asking them to throw something with their left arm uh, that they're recovering from injury on and they've never even thrown anything with that arm prior to injury, uh, there may be a skill-based uh, discrepancy there that's not totally indicative of their power. But just being mindful that there is a standardized test out there that you can perform for that. Um, with uh, the concept of traction and the ability to resist uh, tractional moments to the shoulder, uh, there you can get into more of your double or single arm hanging test. And with this, you know, find something overhead, hold in a bilateral or a unilateral position and see what length of time they're able to uh, hold that position for. You can standardize um, to the injured arm versus the uninjured arm. You can play around with different hand positions of a more supinated or pronated grip or somewhere neutral, and that can be done to preserve them uh, in the early introduction of it or to challenge them, maybe if they have an anterior-posterior instability, as to what may be more or less accommodating for that injury. Um, And you also don't have to start overhead. Like there's nothing to say that you cannot start with that test in more of an inverted position. Uh, Think of like a TRX row where you're more parallel to the ground or or just at a reclined position um, if you're trying for a easier entry point to get into that. Um, Christian, do you mind touching on some of our more endurance-based tests that we have for the upper extremity? Yeah, definitely. Uh, One of the ones that I will frequently use is the posterior shoulder endurance test. Um, I believe you take 2% of body weight and you find a dumbbell that's about that size. Um, There's two ways to do it. Either one, which is typically the way I do it, I will get them prone into like a prone T position and have their arm above the horizontal with that 2% body weight dumbbell in their hand. They get up in the position, I start the test, and we hold for however long they can. It's a super easy test to administer because visually, as soon as they drop below the horizontal, um, that's when the test ends. And you're looking for, I think it's like 45 seconds or so um, on one side compared to the other, or at least that's like a pretty decent norm. The other one that you would do is you would take that same dumbbell and you would just do as many reps as possible until you kind of lose, lose form. I tend to like the one that it's just like the isometric static hold. Because for me, visually, that's just an easier way to stop the test versus when, if they're doing just repetitions, I think it gets a little subjective of what is a good rep, what is not a good rep, kind of when do you stop that. Um, but that's that's one test I like. And then the other one, I, there's honestly, I don't think there's a whole lot of research surrounding it, but it's something I've played around with is just like a repetition maximum for for some sort of test. So if I have an individual who who needs to be able to bench press or needs to be able to single-arm press or single-arm row. And we've been dumbbell benching, let's say, 100-pound dumbbell benches. Maybe I'll pick 75% of it, so 75 pounds, and I'll just do a single-arm dumbbell bench for reps, and I'll compare the number of reps we do side to side. Maybe I'm doing it for somebody who needs to row, so I'll do a split-stance cable row or even a single-arm TRX row and just row as many times on one side 
and then compare that to the other side. I think you made a good point when you were talking about the traction and some of the power tests that we're obviously expecting a side-to-side difference, especially with their non-dominant arm. But I think it depends on the athlete that we have and what they need to be able to do. So if we have an offensive lineman, even if their right arm is is more dominant than their left, I would hope that they're going to be able to single-arm bench press pretty normally side-to-side versus if I have, like, somebody who only really uses one arm for an activity. So, um, like, not to go back to baseball, but a baseball pitcher, I'm going to expect, like, a shot put toss to be different side-to-side. So with some of these repetition maximum tests, I think it's important just to note the type of athlete and the specific activity we're asking them to do, whether it should be 100% symmetry or whether you're expecting some sort of uh, difference in symmetry side-to-side. And I think something that we have not talked about yet is just sport-specific tests and tasks. And this is where, uh, for every individual sport, there's going to be different demands. And it's good for you to get familiar with your patient of what they're trying to get back to, whether that's wrestling, whether that's gymnastics, whether that's swimming, whether that's softball. But is there something that they need to be able to do? Uh, maybe it's a conditioning test. Maybe they're a swimmer and they have certain conditioning or fitness metrics that they need to be able to do. Get familiar with what those are, get them into a pool, um, and give them a progression that they can go to to see how close they are from getting back to their pre-injury state. Um, So figuring out what do they need to do that may be specific to their sport or their position, and are there any formal ways that you can track that in the clinic or giving them um, resources to use outside of the clinic to work back to that. Um, one thing that we haven't touched much on is the concept of we're, we have a lot of formal tests that we can do, but sometimes the exercise themselves is the test. And your progression of individuals through plyometric activities, through weight-bearing activities, uh, through falling or catching tasks, um, through different traction-based activities, that in and of itself, their successful completion performance and tolerance of those tasks in an exercise environment is meaningful as well. And as long as you're documenting that, then you are doing your due diligence in regards to painting a picture of what this individual is capable of doing um, and also just accumulating reps for them from a uh, confidence standpoint of them knowing that they're able to do all these different things that they could either do prior to the injury or that they know they're going to be asked to do in their sporting environment. Um, Christian, do you mind uh, just as we wrap up here, are there any other just uh, factors that you think we should uh, consider when talking on more of like a macro level? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think your last point was really important. It's not like these athletes are not cleared for sport. We bring them in. We run them through every one of the 15 tests you and I just discussed. And then we shake their hand and say, congratulations, go play 90 minutes in your game tomorrow or go throw five innings, right? So these are kind of, based on the specific needs of the individual, these are kind of my prerequisites to then begin participation in practice type of games. And we see this a lot in the ACL literature, like six, six and a half months, maybe seven months. The athletes tend to pass most of a lot of the return to sport tests, but they tend not to return to sport until nine or ideally up to 12 months because there's a gradual progression of volume, of intensity, of cognitive demand and load, and those type of activities in practice situations before they go back out there. It's same if we have 
like a baseball pitcher, we're not gonna they're not gonna pass this test and then they're gonna go throw five innings tomorrow. They're gonna start a throwing progression at that point. So I think it's just important to note that passing these tests would in, in my opinion are at least kind of a prerequisite to then begin participating in more specific types of of activity that will guide them back to what they need to be able to do. Um, but back to the original question, I mean other factors to consider, I, I think these are kind of things, just overarching principles in our head as rehab providers that we need to be thinking about and considering throughout the entire return to sport continuum. We need to think about tissue healing timelines. And I know this is something that you've talked a lot about with the ACL um, and, and how the ACL heals over time. But just because an individual may be okay functionally, well, what if the tissue is not yet healed? We know pretty well from the literature how long it takes on average for a muscle ligament tear or a muscle sprain to, or I should say a ligament tear or a muscle sprain strain to heal, but really making sure that the tissue healing timelines are backing up with our, our kind of battery of tests, but also need to consider, is this a surgical candidate or is it a conservative candidate? Where were they in their season when they got hurt? Where are they in their season now? Um, is their season a third of the way over, or are they completely in the off-season? Well, that may change a little bit about how quick we do things and, and how quick we kind of get them back. Um, and also, I mean, I think it's important to note the, the age of the athlete and the level of play. I mean, if I have athletes who are kind of pre-adolescent into middle school and early high school, I will likely play a bit slower and more careful just because I know they have a long athletic career in front of them. But – on the other hand, if we have a professional athlete who needs to be able to play by a certain date, that's a conversation between, of course, us, the athlete, uh, the surgeon, athletic trainer, nutrition, dietitian, every individual who has kind of a, a decision in the process. So I think those are some other things that are just important to consider throughout the process. So that way, as we're progressing towards the end, we can start having these conversations of, are we going to send them a little earlier? Are we going to hold a little bit more and, and kind of go on from there? Awesome. Thank you, Christian. I think uh, listening to this, hopefully it just stimulates some thought for people in regards to reevaluating what they're currently utilizing with their upper extremity return to sport battery, um, whether or not they gathered any new tests to add to their disposal or just affirmation that what they are doing is a very good battery of tests um, and just making sure that they are communicating the relevance of these tests to the patients um, and just maybe plugging or, or shoring up any holes that they have with regards to how they check range of motion, how they check strength, how they check um, some of these other, you know, functional or sport-specific based tests. Um, I, I think it's an ongoing process that as the literature continues to evolve we will continue to get more specific with what we focus on with each testing, but we should at least be able to go into this a little bit more confidently uh, with regards to how we're approaching it in general. Yeah, and I, I think just adding on that and, and the last closing thoughts with this, I think it's important to note that just because an athlete passes every single one of these return to sport tests does not guarantee that they will not get re-injured. I am never saying to an athlete, congrats, you've passed the test, your injury risk is now zero, right? We, we know injuries are very multifactorial. We know they're very complex. 
Just because you pass these tests in a logical timeline does not mean that you will not get re-injured. And going the opposite way, theoretically, not, and, and in practice, athletes can fail some of these tests and go back and never get injured again. So I, I think it's important that we're, that we're not making this an all-or-nothing situation. For me to be comfortable with sending them back, I need to see them pass certain levels of tests. But understanding from our perspective, from the rehab standpoint, it's not an all-or-nothing, and just because they pass or do not pass a test will not definitively predict whether they get injured or not in the future. Very good point. I think uh, communication and expectations need to be framed up appropriately. Uh, Christian, appreciate your time. Uh, Hopefully those listening uh, found some new uh, tips and tricks to add to their upper extremity return to sport. If you have anything that you utilize uh, that you think is either unique or beneficial or just something you found to be very valuable in your uh, clinical time, Please share it with us. Always love to hear what everybody else is doing. Um, And I think this is an ongoing conversation that will continue to evolve. Uh, Appreciate your time and attention. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Strength and Knowledge Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or have been tuned in for multiple episodes, we would love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Until next time, thanks for listening.